Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On this episode, you're going to be hearing the audio from a history conference panel uh, that I did this spring. Uh, So this conference panel came uh, from the 2021 uh, annual meeting of the Organization of American Historians. Uh, And the panel that I shared uh, was called Taking Video Games Seriously. Uh, And it was focused on looking at the ways in which video games have adapted American history, looking at the ways that American scholars have analyzed video games, how they're using video games for research, uh, and then also how they are increasingly using video games in the history classroom. So uh, the reason why I have this audio is because uh, the OAH meeting uh, for this spring was virtual uh, because of the pandemic. And so typically when you do an academic conference, uh, you don't have any recordings, you don't have any video recordings afterwards uh, to mark the occasion or to share the content after you've produced it. Uh, but this year's conference was different uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, so I, as chair, recorded this footage. I uh, shared it with the OAH. Uh, now that the OAH conference is over, that material has been taken offline Um, But uh, we're still left with this leftover video. Uh, And so you won't get the visual component of this video here, um, which is probably a good thing because I do mess up the slides uh, early on (laughs) in this conference panel, which you won't get to see. Uh, But uh, you do get a lot of great uh, audio discussion here uh, from some leading scholars in the history and game space uh, regarding uh, American history and games, uh, games in the classroom, uh, games in the history classroom, uh, in particular. So in, uh, sharing this audio material, I received, uh, the go ahead from all of my fellow panelists, uh, on this panel. Uh, and, uh, I am not speaking for, we are not speaking for, uh, the OAH, uh, the organization of American historians. Uh, we are simply publishing this on our own. Ah, so with that introduction out of the way, I hope you enjoy the panel. Hello and welcome to this recorded session for OAH 2021. Today's session is a roundtable discussion entitled, Taking Video Games Seriously. The goal of this session, broadly speaking, is to encourage historians of America to take video games seriously as a topic for research, as a potential medium for sharing research, and as a pedagogical tool. Our panel will discuss why historians should care about video games, how history video games have represented America's past, how historians can use video games for teaching, and how historians can use video games for their research. So, so we can get this slide working. <laughs> uh, my name is Bob Whitaker. I'm a professor of history at Collin College, and I'll be serving as the chair for this panel. I am the creator and host of a YouTube and podcast series called History Respond, uh, which features historians and other scholars talking about historical content in video games. And you can learn more about that by going to historyrespond.com. And our illustrious panel for today includes Jonathan S. Jones, who is a postdoc at Penn State's George and Ann Richards Civil War Era Center. 
He is currently revising his first book manuscript entitled Opium Slavery, the Civil War, Veterans, and America's First Opioid Crisis. Starting in fall, Jonathan will be an assistant professor of history at Virginia Military Institute. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. And uh, Jonathan is also responsible for organizing this panel. So thank you very much, Jonathan. Our panel also includes Esther Wright, who is a lecturer in digital history at Cardiff University. She teaches courses on historical video games, popular media, and U.S. history generally. She is co-editing a volume of essays on the Red Dead Redemption franchise for Oklahoma University Press. And Esther's monograph on Rockstar Games and American History is forthcoming from De Gruyter. Esther, welcome. Hi. <laughs> Our next panelist is Anne Ladium McDivitt, who is an assistant professor and the digital humanities librarian at the University of Alabama. She is the author of the first book in De Gruyter's Video Games and the Humanities series, entitled Hot Tubs and Pac-Man, Gender and the Early Video Game Industry in the United States. Anne's research focuses on the history of video games, including the video game industry and media, with a particular interest in gender. Anne, welcome. Hello. Our panel also includes Sean Smith, who is a full-time lecturer in the History Department at California State University, Long Beach, and co-director of the CSULB Center for the History of Video Games and Critical Play. He, along with Jeffrey Lawler, have introduced three classes to Long Beach State University's curriculum focused on digital history methods, video games and historical representation, and the history of gaming and the personal computer. Sean, welcome. Thank you. It's a, good to be here. Um, that brings me to our last panelist, Jeffrey Lawler, who is also a full-time lecturer at California State Long Beach and is the other co-director of the CSULB Center for the History of Video Games and Critical Play. His most recent work published with Sean Smith in includes Reprogramming the History of Video Game Studies, a cultural history approach to video games as primary sources, which it will appear in the summer 2021 issue of International Public History. Jeff, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. All right. Well, those introductions out of the way, let's turn to our first, uh, and of course, I forgot the PowerPoint. So this is Anne's slide. Apologies. Uh, this is her information along with uh, the Twitter handles as well. Sean's slide, at uh, criticalplay.org, uh, and then Jeff's slide. And Jeff uh, has got the uh, picture-perfect slide with a switch included. Uh, I'm sure the endorsement money will be forthcoming uh, after this event. All right, so that brings us to our first question, uh, which is why should historians care about video games? And in order to kind of frame this question, I've got a little bit of statistics that I'll share with you. And these are statistics from the Entertainment Software Association, or the ESA. And this is kind of the main interest group in the United States for the video game industry. Uh, so the ESA reports that the video game industry is responsible for over $45 billion in annual revenue on average. And it also supports over 500,000 jobs in the United States. Additionally, 
of American households include at least one video game player. And as I'm sure most of our viewers are increasingly aware of, uh, video games represent an important emerging field in academia. Uh, there are now over 500 higher education programs in the United States focused on video games and video game development. And there are now also 200 varsity level esports teams in the United States. Uh, so with those statistics out of the way, panelists, uh, why should historians care about video games? I think the money says a lot. Um, you know, si simply put, uh, one of the main reasons why I think scholars should should you know like the panel title says take video games seriously is because this is a huge industry. Um, you know, sometimes at least from my point of view, when you say like um, that an industry is worth X millions or X billions of dollars, it sort of like loses your perspective. But to give you know everybody some some perspective, um, the I looked it up and the highest grossing movie of all time was in 2019 and it was Avengers Endgame. It, it earned something like $325 million. Well, Red Dead Redemption 2, which is um, the highest grossing, which had the highest grossing um, opening weekend of any entertainment product in history, earned more than double what Avengers Endgame earned, right? And so um, Red, Red Dead Redemption 2, back in 2018, earned about $725 million in its opening weekend. And it's explicitly a historically themed game. Right. So it's, you know, not only this is a huge, hugely profitable industry, but also game developers like the company um, Rockstar Games that developed Red Dead Redemption 2 and the, the previous version of, of that uh, in that uh, game franchise back in 2010, they like actively take on the mantle of history to sell products. So they're taking it seriously. They're making a lot of money on it. And I think that we should be there should be some 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 reciprocity there, too. I'm going to jump in as well. Go ahead, Jeff. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, it always reminds me of the quote, and I may misattribute it. It might have been Kevin Key who said, uh, video games have played uh, a lot of attention to history, but historians have paid uh, not so much uh, to the video games. I, uh, that has changed, I think, recently in the last four or five years or what have you, but it, it still is uh, very telling. Um, and, and I think tied to that is that a lot of our, our students, and, and not our, in, in particular, uh, and history students um, are attracted to the discipline, and they are um, they they learn or or become associated with the types of history that are represented within these games, and you know that that's great. It brings them to us, and so I think we need to understand those and be able to have a, a dialogue with them at the same time. Sean, do you have anything to add? Uh, Jeff just kind of stole my thunder. No, um, he took he, he he kind of came at what, at what I was going to say. Um, that is that our uh, given what Jonathan given both the numbers that you have um, given us and and what Jonathan was saying um, that our students are literally immersed in these games from um, from a very early point in their lives. Um, Right. I think for for many, at least in, in some of the informal polls that I've done in classes, um, it suggests that they've been 
or they've seen history video games either as an, a reward in their classrooms, right? We can all kind of remember sitting in a computer lab or sitting in a classroom having finished our work and got to play like Oregon Trail or Carmen San Diego or one of the other kind of traditionally read as uh, as as educational um, history games and that love for games or at least that the 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 games being associated i think with education and games that are given the authority of that educational value right right we're going to take some time you're going to get to play these in class suggests that our students when they get to us um, believe that this very popular form of media um tells a historical story right um and it, it, it presents as the kinds of history that they bring as prior knowledge to our classroom um i think for a lot of historians there's this belief that popular film or that maybe other forms of media are kind of key to our students understandings of history but really, I think I think we could all argue today that it is it, it's video games um, that they're that they're immersed in. I think it's also important to note that um, video games are a cultural phenomenon as well, um, historically and even now. Uh, you know, you don't get something like Pac-Man Fever out of nowhere, and that was a very very popular track. You don't get people who are just entrenched and uh, amazed by Mario out of nowhere. Like you can't ignore that as a cultural historian. This, these kinds of things matter, even if they, um, some historians consider it more lowbrow cultural. Um, but I think that it is significant in and of itself, how much of an impact and how long of an impact games have had. They're not fringe, despite what people might think. That is, is not a fringe entertainment method. Yeah, and I guess just to kind of bring this back around, um, to sort of bring all those points together, I suppose, in some way, um, it's surprising how many people, even if they don't consider themselves to be gamers, will obviously, you know, will still be playing games, um, whether it's playing games on their phone or playing games on their computer, or even if they have console, you know, consoles like PlayStation or Xbox, and they don't consider themselves to be gamers. And certainly a lot of the students that I teach to kind of bring this back to the idea of this is where our students are kind of getting their historical knowledge from a lot of the time even just to add my very specific kind of um, UK context to this this is where a lot of uh, my students are getting their very specific understanding of American history and American culture and society from it's almost certainly from your Red Dead Redemptions or your Grand Theft Autos now it's not really kind of from or not predominantly just from kind of film and television um, and I think really what's so important about it is not just accepting that and kind of meeting them where they come to us with this kind of pre-existing knowledge and understanding but then equipping them with the kind of critical analysis and thinking skills to encourage them rather than discourage them and from telling them that their level of awareness understanding like isn't worth anything but helping them to understand how they need to think about these things really critically because there are lots of really good reasons why they should be thinking about what they're telling them really critically um, so one of the kind of questions that we've been talking about before this recording is, you know, why is it that maybe American historians in particular uh, have been reticent to consider video games as an important part of uh, our understanding of the past and, 
you know, using it for classes, maybe using it for research as well. Um, and, you know, I think with Esther in particular, there it seems to be among European historians, Europeanists as well, a kind of ready acceptance of this idea, or at least more ready than what you find uh, with Americanists. And I'm just wondering, uh, what does the panel think of this? Uh, do we think that Americanists in particular have been slow in moving towards this topic? And if so, why is that? Yeah, I mean, just very quickly, I guess, to start it off, there's definitely, in my experience, much more of a kind of emerging, if not already emerged, field of kind of American studies and game, you know, American studies, X game studies in sort of the UK and in, in Europe with kind of edited collections and special issues coming out on it already. Um, yeah, for some reason, this slightly more external perspective seems to be very much kind of, and for quite, a, you know, quite a few, quite a, sorry, quite a number of years now has been trying to understand what American studies can offer game studies and sort of vice versa. Um, definitely, yeah. Um, and even kind of some people who think of perhaps the most traditional historians um, in sort of the UK and Europe are kind of thinking about ways of incorporating this into what they're doing in a number of ways. So, yeah, just for that context, I guess. I'm going to jump in. Um, and I, 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 to me, I think in some ways, um, Americanists have been slow into the field. Um, for maybe kind of two reasons. One, from the perspective of the games themselves. Um, I think a majority of the games that we think about as historical or as games about history tend to be centered on narratives that are more broadly cast as a kind of, as, as world history. Um, whether that's kind of the civ building games or the real-time strategy games, um, they tend to focus on topics that are more um, tied to either the ancient world or to the Renaissance world or to these to, to topics that I, I think just have been outside of Americanist fields. And when we do get releases of big AAA titles like Assassin's Creed 3 or um, Red Dead. Um, they're tied to kind of more tropey uh, subjects, right? The American Revolution and Assassin's Creed 3 or to the Western mythologies that Red Dead, that Red Dead bring. And I think for those of us who are interested in this, I think there's a need in some ways to, to kind of expand the imagination of how we're going, how we go about using video games or thinking about video games um, and maybe start to think about, especially those games that were created early in the kind of first console generations um, as, as primary sources to tell a bigger story of the industry mm -hmm. um, rather than being so stuck in this notion of narrative as accurate or narrative as um, you know historical like kind of like we've been treating film studies or, or music and thinking really thinking about broadening the scope of the way we treat games i'm gonna jump I'll jump on where sorry john uh where sean was there i i agree with sean in, in part not wholly um i mean the a, a lot of games automatically and i've heard uh developers and programs or say it is you know the tropes essentially assist them in thinking about how to create a narrative um, and they use those purposefully and you know the american west or the revolution or the, you know 
war series around World War II, like Call of Duty, you know, those are sort of standard um, avenues that, that can be used and attacked. Um, I, I, it seems to me, though, that uh, to take it from what Sean was saying, you know, games, in a sense, or video games or electronic games, however, or, or digital games, um, they're new-ish. Um, and for historians, they're really on the cusp of studying as primary sources. Um, and so now we have a generation who these, you know, you can go back and look at these and situate these uh, more appropriately from a distance as a historian. I also think that um, games, the, the term games in general is off-putting to maybe a field that tends to be more traditional and or conservative in its approach to documents in research um, and 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 just like sport history, you know, or music history, right? Um, though those tend to be fringy in some ways, and I think games themselves and the connotation of games brings that sort of idea of fringiness. I think we can bring it in, and I think they will be brought in as as they are here, and they are as as Anne and everybody's discussed, they, they are these important cultural documents, lowbrow, midbrow, highbrow, it doesn't really matter because they speak to a historical moment that I think we're all aware of. And I don't know if this is necessarily just Americanists, but um, there can also be a learning curve to using video games for historical study. Uh, you know, how am I going to actually play this game that came out in 1978? Um, am I even gonna be able to play the original version of that? If so, um, you know, is it, is it going to be the exact same experience? Are we considering this the primary document if I'm having to emulate it, that kind of thing? Um, there is a learning curve to that. And even playing games in and of itself has a learning curve. Not everybody can, can figure out how exactly to get through it. And so I think that, that that's a little bit of a, a scary moment for people, um, especially, like you said, there, there can be some conservatism um, in departments that, you know, how do I actually get started with this kind of thing? And you know, I I ended up going through a, a dot matrix printout of some code for a game at one point, and I think that if I gave that to someone who studies the Civil War, they would just look at this like, okay, this is like numbers and none of it makes sense. But, you know, you could go through it and see how they were actually making these games and what kind of languages they were using and that kind of thing matters. Um, but it is it is a little bit scary to some people. Yeah, and I would just add that I think it's so ironic that um, Americanists, like, you know, and, and also, you know, historians of the United States have been so slow to come around to uh, historical video games as, uh, you know, part of the, as something that's valid of, of being studied. Because, uh, you know, when you think back to some of the earliest, the most popular video games of all time, like Oregon Trail, for example, was a game that was explicitly invented to get eighth graders and, and you know middle schoolers into the subject of American history to hook them in the classroom. So it's just so, so, you know, when you sit back and think about things like that, it's it's almost um, it's really troubling that Americanists have been so slow to come around to um, you know historical video games when historical video games have for literally for decades already come around to American mm. history. Yeah. And I think to follow off of that point, I mean, America in general is so central to the history of video games. You know, you'd say probably the first 30 years of video games existence, it's a story about Japan and it's a story about America. And then later on you get Western Europe, you get Eastern Europe, et cetera. But those are kind of the twin 
pillars of understanding video games as a medium. And, you know, to go along Jonathan's point, um, you know, so many of the early video games, uh, computer game titles were based on American history. Um, and so many of those early video games, like Jonathan said, uh, educational titles were actually developed by people with history degrees. Now, they weren't professors, they didn't have PhDs, but, you know, Don Rawitz, who worked on Oregon Trail, was a history educator with a history BA. Um, and many people involved in, say, Sid Meier's Civilization series, uh, Civilization II, Civ III, Civ IV, they all have uh, history BAs uh, from American universities. So uh, it's not just about uh, you know, America being important to video game development. It's also about American historians uh, being important to video games. Um, so yeah, any, any last thoughts on that topic? Feeling good? Yeah, I wonder. Um, sorry, Jonathan, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and I think Esther can probably speak more directly to this because this pertains to her, her research on Red Dead Redemption. But, you know, game developers um, actively take on the mantle of historical authenticity to market their products. So, you know, uh, game developers, when you think of like um, Civilization or Red Dead Redemption or uh, Call of Duty or, or, you know, whatever game franchise we're talking about, they pitch their products in many cases as being historically accurate to get gamers, you know, into the plot of the game to get gamers, you know, thinking about the game to, to boost sales and, and things like that. Right. So if, if I guess the point that I'm making is that if game development, uh, game developers are taking, um, you know, making claims about historical authenticity, then we should, we should scrutinize those claims because if we don't, if we sort of ignore video games, then we're leaving any narratives that the, the game developers are putting into their games unchallenged. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you say, Jonathan, like a lot of game developers and a lot of the biggest game developers who have a lot of the influence and, you know, have a, a lot of the market, they are very, very willing to kind of perform the role of historian, which, you know, as you say, is something that I look at, you know, in, in my research anyway. And yeah, they're, they're very explicit in kind of putting out a very particular kind of narrative and claiming that that narrative has some kind of bearing on the truth. They are in their own ways kind of very well versed in American sort of traditional American history but also tradition uh, sort of American cultural history and they are really good at kind of combining those things in, into making games that are obviously really popular and I guess it comes back to kind of what I was saying earlier about the developing the kind of critical analysis and thinking skills not only in historians to kind of confront that and sort of be part of those conversations and those discourses around why this is happening and what kind of stories are being told but you know likewise giving, uh, you know, putting that kind of discussion and putting that kind of critical analysis into the hands of like our students, but also into the hands of the people who play these games too. Okay. Yeah. Oh, John, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, that's fine. I can, I'll hold. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's turn to our next question, uh, which asks, uh, how have games represented American history up to this point? What stories have been excluded or neglected? Now, uh, in order to kind of frame this question, I asked the panelists to come up with uh, a list of uh, critical texts, critical games that we would use to kind of understand generally how video games uh, have depicted American history. Uh, and so uh, if you don't see your favorite game listed here, then you can blame them. Uh, I am totally blameless in all of this. So our, our first game uh, is in many ways the ur-text of historical gaming, the Oregon Trail. 
which was developed uh, for Don Rawich's junior high history class uh, in Minneapolis in 1971. Uh, so this is a game that will be celebrating uh, its 50th anniversary this December. Uh, and uh, this game, uh, we see here, this is the very strange cover of the Apple II edition, which came out in 1985. Uh, and this is the most famous version of the game. You may have played other iterations of it, uh, but this is the Apple II version that uh, sold over 65 million copies. So this makes it one of the most popular games of all time, right up there with Grand Theft Auto and Super Mario Brothers. Uh, and uh, I don't know what's going on with this cover. I hope that raccoon's not actually alive. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, next game. For our consideration is 2012's Assassin's Creed 3, uh, which is part of the long-running historical action-adventure series published by French company Ubisoft. Uh, Assassin's Creed 3 features a narrative built around America's War of Independence uh, and finds the players interacting with George Washington, Ben Franklin, while running around digital versions of 18th century Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. Uh, and then next we have the Call of Duty franchise, and in particular, uh, Call of Duty World War II, uh, and more recently, Call of Duty Cold War. Uh, World War II came out in 2017, uh, and it follows a platoon of American soldiers fighting in Western Europe during the Second World War. Uh, Call of Duty series uh, is known for its first-person perspective, bombastic cinematic action, and also Nazi zombies. Uh, and Call of Duty World War II is the best-selling console game in 2017, so it just goes to show you history games sell. They make money. Uh, and then Call of Duty Cold War came out this past year, one of the best-selling games uh, in the franchise and features uh, players playing primarily a group of uh, American CIA operatives running around uh, various theaters of the Cold War and interacting with a digital version of Ronald Reagan. A very uh, terrifying digital Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Uncanny Valley. Uh, that that's would be a good uh, picture uh, for that phrase in the dictionary. Uh, and then our last uh, set of games are, are the uh, Red Dead Redemption uh, games. Uh, the first installment, Red Dead Redemption 1, came out in 2010. On the sequel, Red Dead Redemption 2, published in 2018. The Red Dead series was created by Rockstar Games, uh, the makers of Grand Theft Auto series. Uh, and it's a game that features uh, primarily British writers. Uh, and so it's kind of an interesting European perspective on American history. Um, the Red Dead series follows the exploits of various gang members, uh, Western outlaws, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. So... Uh, given this collection of games, uh, what do we want to say about the question of how have games represented American history and what stories have been excluded or neglected? I am going to jump in here um, this time. And um, this is kind of following on what Esther was talking about earlier. And I think it's a, an, an interesting transition to um, thinking about these games as public um, as, as public memory, essentially, or uh, and the way in which they tend to reinforce um, American cultural myth um, and kind of heritage interpretations um, that, you know, where in almost all of these, including, I would, I would argue, the Oregon Trail, 
Right. Um, we've got men basically in manifest roles. We've got this kind of heroic defense of democracy and, and liberty. And in the case of Assassin's Creed, Call of Duty and Red Dead, um, the unquestioning mowing down of almost anonymous enemies who have been completely reduced to character caricature or stereotype. Um, right. And this exceptional, exceptionalist narrative that is provided in, in, in all these games um, goes unchecked and unchallenged when our students are playing them as forms of entertainment. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that, that ties this to the, the question about why should we be interested in these as, as historians, the other question is that, you know, our students are coming away with this uncritical examination of the past that's true, that really is heralding kind of the advances in Western culture and men in manifest roles while casting women and, and tradition, other traditional minority groups in these kind of subcategories um, of, of play and not giving them the kind of agency that maybe they deserve. There's so much to say here, so I'll just jump in because I know everybody else has a lot to say. So um, I, I, just to start with the, the first one, uh, Oregon Trail, I think we've all played it and, and, maybe, and people listening have probably at least heard of it and you can always emulate it. Um, the most interest, I mean, I, I know, uh, you know, what it was created for and who created it, but I think kind of as Sean mentioned too, they're, to use this term, they are about the, this idea of sort of American exceptionalism in many ways. And, and the one way that it stands out with Oregon Trail, there are many ways, even though it's fun to play and fun to play with my students, right? Um, that I, I ask sometimes my students, like, like, why are you going to Oregon? Like, what does the game say about going to Oregon? And they have no idea because the game doesn't tell you. It tells you you can be a banker or you can be a, what, a farmer. I can't remember all of them. Um, but the point of going there is just, of course, it's like, of course you're going there. It's American expansion. This is what you're doing. This is how you succeed and expand the nation. And after that, it's just a matter of, survival it's your own survival right and so this frontier experience and i think in some ways why the creepy old man is next to his uh, kid grizzly there, adams you know, right. yeah that uh you know he is you know this 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 jedediah smith this frontier character of a sorts that's just like every other frontier character out there um built on this sort of mythos of what the frontier experience was And in games like Call of Duty, you have um, a sort of dangerous level of American exceptionalism because you do have oftentimes the reframing of instances that um, American actors did that they're reframed as somebody else did this terrible thing. Um, I think in particular, is it the most recent one that's like, oh, the Russians actually did this, not the Americans. And that is a complete terrible thing to do. But I mean, it is it is something worth noting that there there's a lot of reframing going on with these games as well. And um, I'm thinking um, of Assassin's Creed three in particular, this was the first one that actually was um, American focused. And um, there was, there was some controversy when it first came out about the protagonist because he's not a white guy. Uh, he, he has um, some native American 
ancestry. Um, and I, I remember that there was a lot of backlash on that, which they don't really do anything with that character other than, you know, he, he is the, the player character and he can murder a ton of people. They don't really address that much and who he is in his identity. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say across the board, really, you're talking about a kind of very partial and kind of exclusive image of what American is, American, American history is rather. And I think this idea of American exceptionalism is, is really kind of interesting um, and important and kind of, you know, as, as other people have said, like runs core to the way that sort of US history and what it is and how it is characterized runs run central through all of these games um and i think we can't really overstate the importance of the way that video games draw on other kind of pre-existing forms of popular culture too um i mean you know we see it in things like call of duty world war ii and the way that it, it draws on sort of the the very kind of i don't know saving private ryan band of brothers version of the second world war you know not even to mention something like red dead redemption which obviously draws entirely on a very very partial very exclusive idea of what not only the history of the american west but what the history of the american western as a kind of a cultural form or as a genre is you know these are not representative ideas of you know what world war ii was and you know who was involved and these are not representative ideas about what the american west was or you know southwestern or whatever however you're going to kind of categorize it um and so you know in that case the fact that sort of American popular culture, these, you know, what we see, these quintessential sort of American genres in some ways, I guess, like, you know, the war film or the the Western, that they've had such a reach in the sense that, you know, in the case of something like Red Dead Redemption, a British company or, you know, a, an originally British company that is now a kind of British American company, more of a multinational company, is essentially making games about American exceptionalism that they you know initially had very little stake in but basically kind of grew up with and wanted to make games about american culture so bad that it was just completely the internalization and regurgitation of these kind of core myths like exceptionalism um so yeah seeing not only contemporary video games and you know his historic video games i suppose like the oregon trail as games that are repeating these kind of very particular myths but they are repeating them for a particular reason and mm -hmm. because they come at, at sort of the end of a long sort of lineage of other cultural forms that have been recycling and repackaging these myths for you know a hundred plus years essentially yeah i think that's a really good point and you know i think uh, on the one hand it might be difficult for a lot of american historians to approach the subject of video games and history in video games, but at the same time with how much these games borrow from um, cinematic narratives um, and novels uh, that maybe historians present to their students for analysis in class. Um, it seems like if you can do that, you could do the same thing with these games because many of those same legends, those same myths, those same tropes are are there. And I think also, as Esther was pointing to it, it's interesting that many of these more popular recent titles are developed by foreigners looking at American history, you know, uh, Ubisoft, primarily uh, French, uh, and then French Canadian development team. Um, and then Red Dead Redemption, uh, the main writing group, uh, the Housers are British nationals. Uh, and as Esther was pointing to, uh, there might be some kind of Brexit analysis that we could do with uh, British nationals looking at American exceptionalism and independence 
you know, <laughs> no, we, we don't want to go there. Uh, and so anybody else, any other, any other thoughts on this? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I, you know, I guess um, on the subject of what gets put in these games uh, and what gets left out, these, in a lot of ways, just as, you know, the games um, mirror like popular culture versions of American history, um, you can trace their, how they evolve over time. So, for example, um, the Oregon Trail, the, you know, 1971 version and then the Apple II version in, uh, that came out in 85, which I just played last night on archive.org. So if you're curious, you can go and, you know, emulate this and play it on your, on your computer. You don't need any special software. Um, anyways, so, so, you know, with Oregon Trail, the, the plot is basically in, you know, 1847 or 1848, you're a, a white pioneer family going to Oregon, like Jeff said. Uh, and there's, there's really like no um, Native Americans, for example. There's no discussion of, of you, know, uh, you know, Native American genocide and the seizure of that land. There's no discussion of the issue of slavery, you know, and the coming of the Civil War. But when you fast forward uh, several decades and you get to games like Assassin's Creed Three back in 2012, I think, mm -hmm. uh, and then Call of Duty World War II in 2017, and then RDR2, uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 the next year in 2018, you start to see as society, um, uh, as pop culture starts to become, I guess, more inclusive in its discourse, as you start to see um, uh, uh, audiences being more perceptive about, you know, who gets left out of pop culture, basically, you start to see games tackle those subjects too. For example, in Assassin's Creed 3, the main character, um, the, the guy Connor, I think is his name. Uh, so, yeah. So anyways, he's uh, an indigenous man. And as he explores, um, or as he, you know, as the, the player through Connor explores the gamescape, colonial America, um, in, you know, during the American Revolution. At one point, if I'm remembering correctly, there's a point where um, Washington's uh, blue coat army attacks Connor's village, right? And so you start to see themes like, um, you know, uh, Americans um, attacking Native Americans. So you start to see these narratives popping up in games um, when you wouldn't have seen that back in, in the, the Oregon Trail era. Um, there's also in Assassin's Creed 3, um, the first, at least in, in my mind, as somebody who grew up kind of playing these games before graduate school, before becoming a historian, Assassin's Creed 3, I think, has the first um, really big explicit reference to slavery and the sale of enslaved people in an American history themed video game. At the end, uh, I hate to, I don't want to give any, you know, spoilers away to the plot of the game, but, you know, it's, you know how the American Revolution ends, right? <laughs> so as the British are sailing away from New York, there's this cutscene in Assassin's Creed 3 where Connor, the main guy, like, is watching the British sail away and there's a crowd around him and they're cheering, you know, yeah, go away, go home, British. Connor turns around and sees literally a slave auction block. There's a, 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 a slave sale going on in New York City in the 1780s. And so the implication is that, you know, yes, uh, the audience thinks it's great that the British have, have gone. But on the other hand, the gamers, the game developers want to point out that the British leaving, you know, the continent safeguards the future of, of slavery, right? So you start to see these things coming up in um, video games as I think more and more Americans become aware of the, the historical reality. Uh, and I could go on and on about this for days, but there are examples of that in Call of Duty World War II and lots and lots of examples of that in Red Dead Redemption 2 as well. It's getting better as we move along that, that there are more voices and more people being included in these games, albeit not perfectly, but it is at least happening some. To, uh, I, so we don't want to take this too long, but um, the jump, back a, a bit, uh, maybe to tie in a little bit too, is that um, as Bob was saying earlier, and 
um, you know, these texts that we have, we learn how to read. And, you know, when we teach a class, and if I'm showing my class um, uh, The Great Train Robbery of 1903, or I'm having them read part of The Virginian, right, by Owen Wister, right? Well, I'm doing that so they understand, you know, the, the, the ideas and how ideas of the West developed over time, or still in Stagecoach in 1939 or what have you. This is, this, is this, this is built on that same thing as Esther was mentioning, right? These are a lineage of texts that have built a mythos around an idea. And if I'm studying those, why am I not studying the same thing that is building on the same mythos, right? There's a, a direct train there um, that you can't miss. I should mention, um, just going off Jonathan's point with Assassin's Creed Three. Um, Assassin's Creed 3 came with a uh, portable uh, game called Assassin's Creed 3 Liberation, on which you play as a black female protagonist uh, in the city of New Orleans uh, and the surrounding area, uh, the Caribbean also, uh, during the late 18th century. And so that game has a, kind of this explicit discussion of slavery. Um, unfortunately, it was uh, in a portable device, at least initially. You can get it now on anything, uh, consoles or PC, but... When it was initially released, it came on a portable device that hardly anybody had. So very few people actually played it. But uh, it's again, it goes to Jonathan's point of this kind of increasing complicated uh, narratives of the past included in these games, which I think reflect not only uh, changes with development teams, you know, interested in telling different stories, uh, but then also kind of a, a cynical uh, capitalist motivation, right? Finding interesting narratives, interesting history they can mine uh, and then resell uh, to a largely American audience. You know, it shouldn't be forgotten that when we're talking about video games, you know, we're talking about a pastime for the developed world, uh, something that's very popular uh, in United States, Canada, um, in Japan, and in Western Europe, uh, but then other areas of the world largely kept out of this kind of uh, uh, this this story, unless we were talking about mobile games. And I think it's also important to maybe mention, at least within the Assassin's Creed series, the um, the attempt, and I think it starts with three, but it may have been even earlier, to encapsulate some of that history into an educational framework. Um, in Assassin's Creed three, you had the uh, the basically the screen you could open up to to go through a, a Wikipedia version of the uh, history that you have experienced as Connor at this point in time. And that culminated over time with the Assassin's Creed Origins. Was it Origins or? Origins, yes. Yeah, that had the full um, uh, downloadable content that was just a museum walk essentially through the world that stripped Assassin's Creed of all of its game um, and let us kind of boringly walk around the Golden Road looking at uh, quotes from the British Museum about uh, antiquities that they had stolen. Um, so, um, it, you know, but it was meant to have this essential educational 
foundation that made these games safe for kids to play mm -hmm. right um so no matter that you're you know in the core game you're slashing people in some of the most brutally violent ways um we can turn that off and now you can walk through the museum and see the right and see the the glories of these uh artifacts uh in in a wikipedia fashion so um and I, so there's there's this weird attempt there um and and they've largely abandoned it in valhalla um Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know just yet. I think there's a there's a discovery tour mode coming for that. I'm oh, sure. is there? Is yes. it coming? Okay, because yes. right now it's really thin. Yes. <laughs> and um, but it just it just feels. And this goes back to what um, you were saying, Bob, about kind of the crass consumer nature of the educational side, um, right? That just feels sometimes just tacked on. And I think it's it's we have a responsibility as historians to kind of to 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 grapple with that, um, even if these are games um, that are exclusive to expensive computing devices or exclusive to expensive consoles, um, it's clear somebody's right and, and people are playing them. Um, so anyway, yeah. And just to tack on briefly to that, um, the the presence of Assassin's Creed in their Discovery Tour mode, it should be a warning shot for academics, historians, because. Ubisoft, they wouldn't make this mode unless they thought it could make money. So mm -hmm. they are looking to find ways, avenues into the classroom That's right. and into yeah. academic settings. And so it's almost one of these issues we're talking about. Why should historians pay attention? Well, you know, Ubisoft and other developers are going to be in the academic spaces going forward. And so it's almost like you can't avoid it in certain circumstances. I was about to bring that up when I was getting my master's degree. Um, there was a an event by Ubisoft at the local community college where uh, you could come and you could play Assassin's Creed on the planetarium, and they were marketing it towards history majors, and uh, they they knew what they were doing there, and you know it was a really cool event. I, I went, and you know it's wild to see Assassin's Creed three on a planetarium um but you know that that was a marketing technique and they were marketing it to people that they thought you're already interested in history come buy this game because it was like about to come out so it was kind of a preview type thing yeah and i'll just add you know i think that um in, you know, as game company, game development companies are increasingly interested in making money off of, you know, touting their products as educational. I think that, you know, there, there should be increasing pressure on these companies to, to have like credentialed historians consulting on these projects, right? Like, um, and I think there's some precedent for that. Um, for example, um, thinking about Assassin's Creed 3, um, the, develop, the development company Ubisoft um, hired an a indigenous man as a cultural expert. Well, what, you know, moving forward, if, if game companies are going to continue making like Assassin's Creed discovery modes, then I think that the, the discipline should, um, you know, hold game companies to the best of our ability to account to hire, you know, historians to consult on these projects to make sure that it's not just, like Sean said, a Wikipedia version of history to make sure that it's something more accurate, more critical, um, being embedded into these discovery tours. Um, for example, you know, I would hate for Rockstar uh, to come out with like a Red Dead Redemption 2 discovery mode that completely ignores um, the violence of, of, you know, the American West or the violence of slavery. Um, and I personally think that Rockstar did um, a good job confronting the hard history of slavery in Red Dead Redemption 2. But again, we need to hold game development companies that are making, you know, millions and millions of dollars to account to, to, to hire historians to consult on these projects. 
just my bet. It's, it's a real interesting point on a number of levels. And I think back to, I forget which assassin, here we go, it's Assassin's Creed II, the French Revolution, where they hired uh, the historian Maxime, I forget his Maxime last name. Maxime Durand. Durand, yeah. Who, um, and, and you know, there's French historians in our department and uh, um, I've spoken with them about it, but it, it, it seems to me the takeaway was they, they essentially hired a historian who fit with the model of the story they wanted to tell about violence and the revolution. And so they could use the historian then as a sort of foil to their own first person shooter ideas um, in this particular instance. Not necessarily bad. I always think back to, to Rosenstone, kind of, you know, the, the guiding point of the film studies and game studies is, you know, you don't want historians to make a movie because it'd be a boring movie. It'd be a golden road in a museum and nobody wants that. But at the same time, consultants um, are good too. Um, I think the problem with the, the, the French Revolution was they consulted one historian, right? And that fit the model, right? They, they did what they wanted to do and, and that was merely it. Um, I do think as everybody's mentioned, having, and, and I think this speaks to why this is important, uh, what we're doing is that um, as historians look at these and engage with sort of the critical ideas and ideas of authenticity and accuracy and all these these issues is it, it the game companies are a bit crass in making monies of course they they are companies but at the same time as Jonathan mentioned they have been making choices about inclusion into their game um, it's not always the best but sometimes it works and it's it's a lot better than it it, it it was in the past. So I think having these these moments where you're not only, um, I don't want to say challenging the companies, but having a dialogue about the representation within the game and, and then also a discussion with your students and giving them the critical tools, then, you know, the game companies are, are aware of how people are engaging with these games, right? Because games are... There, there's, there's, you know, there's the back and forth between the expectation, what players want and what games are going to give them, and which is why they often deal in tropes, because people expect these tropes. Just Red Dead Redemption, it has all of those tropes in there, right? Um, but all of this, I think, speaks to the idea that, 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 that giving the tools and presenting the tools and challenging the companies is a, is a good way to make games um, have better representation, more inclusion, and that doesn't necessarily make a bad game either. I have discussions with my students about, you know, there's good games and there's fun games. And a good game to me is one that does good representation and has good inclusionary policies in this. But games can be fun that have none of, none of that, right? I think so, it also, oh, sorry, Jonathan. I was just going to add to any game companies out there listening to this, you know, OAH roundtable, we're here, <laughs> hire historians. And I was going to say it also, to Jeff's point, it, it, it brings historians into a broader cultural conversation um, that is being had, that was a horrible sentence, uh, in, in the games press, in the, you know, the corners, some of the darker corners of Twitter, um, where people are, the, a certain segment of people are becoming very upset of about the representations that in in some ways historians are making dem uh, demanding in these games um it's it's it, you know it, it's angering a base of 
gamers um, who are, who I think in some ways also need to be confronted in terms of a broader conversation, right? That it's, it's that, that our job isn't just to our students, but as historians with a, a reach into the public, right? And whose voice at a time when, until, you know, recently at a time when the voice of the expert is being uh, essentially ignored, um, it's nice. I mean, it, I think we need to have our place at that at that popular table, um, and not just leave it to games journalists to try to defend feminism in games or to try to defend uh, inclusion in games. Um, we have to take a responsibility and become a part of that larger national conversation. Um, you know, when Wolfenstein, the the, the newest Wolfenstein, um, was being just beat up in, um, in, on Twitter, um, there wasn't, there wasn't a historical voice there to, to, def, right, to, to come out and, and weirdly defend a game development company, um, for their choices of, right. Nobody would have ever thought in the 21st century that we would have had to defend shooting Nazis in, um, in a video game. Right. And, and yet people were having to come to the defense of the developer, um, for just that reason. So I think it's, in, it's, it, I think, you know, to ignore games and and to ignore right this broader culture is 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 kind of comes to our detriment as as a profession if we're not engaged in the larger conversation. Um, two small things about that. Uh, one, it's a small anecdotal uh, example, but I did have a small development indie crew reach out to me and ask if I would come speak to them about uh, some topics, including inclusion and gender. Uh, so yay, it is happening. It might be on a small scale level, but I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, and two, um, on the note of having to engage with, with people who are saying awful things, um, that can also be pretty terrifying. Um, you know, I've, I've had to throw myself out there a few times and, you know, uh, have to defend myself with my, my department, explain what Game Brigade is and, um, it can, it can get really, really dicey really quickly. Uh, so we have to be careful about how we're doing it so that we don't bring any kind of danger to ourselves as well. They can be nasty out there. All right. Um, not, not to say don't do it. Yeah. It's good to do. All right, well, just to keep things moving, I'm gonna move on to our uh, next question. Uh, which is, how can historians use video games for teaching? Uh, what are the potential benefits and risks of using video games in the classroom? And so uh, we are a panel of uh, historians, but also educators. And so many of us have used uh, video games in the classroom, uh, used video game development as well in the classroom. So I'll turn things over to the panel. Uh, what could you recommend to our viewers as to how to bring games into the classroom and then maybe also game development? I guess I'll start just to get it rolling, but um, bringing games into the classroom, um, even if you're not used to games or know games very well, I think is relatively easy. We actually have several people in our department who are not gamers who don't play games, um, but they will watch walkthroughs, watch portions and find games that are associated with what they're teaching and 
they can talk about these these issues of representation and what they're learning um, from whatever discipline it is. And I think of a, a, a few individuals in our department who do this and who bring in the consoles. And, and, and what you're really doing there also, besides just engaging in material in a new way and giving students a, a new tool and uh, a new way, new tools to think about uh, this medium is like we said at the beginning is students are really engaged with games. It's, it's not that every student plays games, but they know of them. And it's something that is almost visceral that they can associate with. And I think it's a fairly good way to make a connection with them and give them ways, new ways to understand what they're looking at. Um, it's not saying, hey, I'm the cool professor. That's not what we're talking about. Um, it, it's about giving them um, forms of media that are understandable that you can help them tease apart. And I think lots of people can, can do that in very simple ways. In a different type of example, um, it, it ends my role as a digital humanities librarian. I've worked with lots of different educators across uh, fields. And there was a class that I was teaching where um, they were learning about Beowulf. And so they brought me in and the first discussion we had is, okay, well, this is an English class. How can we bring history into this as well? Because Beowulf is a historical text and also set in a period of time that is specific. Um, and so I kind of got to bring my historian side to it, but I got to bring my gaming side to it as well, because what we ended up doing is having the students build spaces from Beowulf in Minecraft, but they had to use historic documents in order to justify their choices and why, like, why is your building built like this? Why is your door like this? What kind of wood are you using, you know, as, as much as you can in Minecraft? Um, but that's making them think with games in a way that they wouldn't really think about the text. Otherwise, they're just reading the book. And um, several students came in having no idea. They'd never played a video game. And they were just enthralled with the idea of, okay, I can put a dragon in this building that I built. And that's really, really neat. And so we had people who came in knowing absolutely nothing about games who were very, very passionate by the end of it and said that they were going to keep a Minecraft account because they just wanted to keep building. And so, you know, we're, we're teaching them how to, how to have fun with the game, but also how to think about what you're actually creating with the game and why it matters. And um, so there was the historical thinking there that I thought was fantastic. And, you know, they had their list of primary sources at the very end. This is how I figured out how my building was going to look. Yeah, I mean, especially for me too, and sort of the way that I teach my own kind of courses on history, um, it's kind of about not seeing games and digital, digital games, digital historical games as incompatible with the kind of history that we are teaching our students anyway. So, you know, kind of um, jumping off from what um, Jeff and Anne were saying, um, really, the students are already kind of like, you know, engaged in these things. So why not actually just build on that and then kind of use it as an access point into teaching them the kind of historical research and writing skills that they will already be sort of developing over the course of their degree. So 
for example, in the, the second year sort of undergraduate um, history course that I teach at Cardiff, um, which is called sort of digital games and the practice of history. We have a kind of double semester model where for the first semester, they get kind of taught the theory of historical game studies and specifically kind of how games write history. And we think about all these kind of representational issues about kind of gender and race and colonialism and how games simulate the past, how they make arguments about the past and they get, yeah, kind of the, you know, the complete whistle-stop tour of all the theory of sort of how games are, you know, representing the past and then for the second semester they sort of turn their, turn their hand to that themselves and they come up with their own digital game concepts and obviously I'm not assuming any level of coding expertise or any kind of technical knowledge because I don't have that knowledge either. It's just about allowing them and sort of enabling them to apply the kind of research skills they're already applying to things like essays and to the kind of more traditional history, traditional history assignments. You know, they're doing their kind of historiography work. They're doing this sort of um, primary source analysis. And then they are using that research and using those skills to justify the kind of concept that they want to make, the kind of history game that they would be really interested in. For whatever reason and they have to think about things like audience they have to think about what it is they're trying to con convey and what they are trying to communicate and to who they're trying to communicate that um and i think it's just yeah like i say these things are not incompatible and you know there are challenges to doing this there are challenges to bringing kind of video games into the classroom you know i started running this module with basically no lead-in time uh, for the start of my contract with no resources and no technology other than the PS4 that I had and the computer that I had and we're also in a pandemic so it's all online now and how do you give students the resources they need when you can't just wheel a console into the classroom so you know I'm sure people on this panel with more experience than me can talk about the challenges of doing that but I think there are so many benefits and they are actually quite low startup if we just kind of think about what we could do with them, I guess. Yeah, I'll follow up on that um, because we do, <clears throat> Jeff and I um, teach in, this, in the same department and our colleagues and the way that we approach games and have written a couple of classes, much like Esther's class, um, that explores the, kind, the theoretical underpinnings of representation in the past, but also takes it um, one step further. Um, and we we have a we've we've approached our game development side using a really simple engine called Twine, um, which is, uh, allows for our students to take that historical research that they've done for the creation of the game and the justifications that they've met made and at least see it in a form that is playable that they can share with friends that they can share within the class um, and and get a feel for the way in which their uh, their creativity and their their interpretations um, can be interacted with 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 their peers and with us. Um, so we've uh, so, so we have a final project in an upper division class that does exactly um, as Esther was talking, but we, we get a, we make it a playable game essentially. And I've done this as well in lower division survey courses, um, US survey courses. And <clears throat> there are some, 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 some real problems with 
with doing that um, in some of the characterizations that they come up with. But those characterizations often come from their previous experience with other games. And so they're just following that on with that text. Um, and it gives us a point where we can talk about those kind of misinterpretations or the way in which they're approaching this. And even through the frustration, last semester I had um, a, a class of 25 honors students. So they're a little bit different than a, a traditional survey course, but um, all of them suggested that they enjoyed writing those games putting more effort into the historical research of these games than they would have ever put into a five page paper for me at the end of a semester. And to a T, they all said they enjoyed it and were more proud of the work that they were able to do um, than just a, a paper that gets shared with just me essentially at the end of the semester. So I think there's some real interesting engagement things that we can do with game development and with these kind of choose your own history narratives that we can do on Twine and, and other small game engines without any real technical expertise. I don't expect them to do any of the advanced coding that Twine allows for. They can just write a simple AB choice game. And we do make it where you have to put some form of randomness into it so that they don't walk away with this notion of this kind of predetermined past or this idea, right? Or that uh, all choices lead to one space. So we do, we have to do, we, we really do have to play around with some of the form, but it, I think it's a, an incredibly valuable um, lesson that they both, they take away and that we, I think as, as, as instructors um, learn from them as well, so. Yeah, and just to follow up on Sean's point for the viewers, uh, Twine is a choose-your-own-adventure generator uh, development tool. It's freely available online. Uh, it has a lot of uh, troubleshooting aids uh, to help you use it, but it's pretty self-explanatory. It's primarily text-based, but you can also include uh, audio, you can include visuals, uh, and like Sean was saying, uh, primary sources are very easy uh, to put in there and adjust for a Twine narrative. Uh, you can also include citations uh, with Twine as well. Uh, and this is something that I've used uh, in my uh, Playing the Past course as well. And just like San said, you know, it's very user-friendly, no coding required, and yet you can come away with a game that's playable, something that students can share, uh, not only in the class, but with other people. Uh, and Twine also includes a lot of easy uh, digital tools to publish it online. So you can actually have uh, a wider player base than just the people in your class. And uh, when I taught this class before, uh, I would have a historical game jam uh, at the end of the semester in which other students from other classes uh, would come and play it live. Uh, but then all of the Twine games would be published afterwards on the department's website so that you could go by and you know basically uh, treat it like you would, say, student research papers that you might publish or uh, put online, but it's a playable game, which I think the students felt uh, a little bit more ownership over it. So I think they feel like a lot of times when they're writing a, a five-page research paper that it's just uh, they're regurgitating ideas they got from class or that they got from secondary sources. Uh, but here with these games, they feel as though, oh, this is something I want to put my name on. This is something that I did. This is my representation of the past. I, just to, to build on that, not to repeat everything, but um, it, I think it's really important to stress, and I think everybody has kind of stressed that 
all the traditional history methods are employed when doing the game and game research. And in that, as Bob just mentioned, it really does provide students get a real sense of agency um, with it. And it also gives them a sense of lateral thinking because they're so used to script and to do something digitally. Um, sometimes they get really excited, and, but you also see them make breakthroughs because it's such a different way of thinking that they have to approach it in a way they haven't before. And it makes them do more research. It makes them think harder. It makes them upset, um, which is learning in some ways, right? And I had students uh, last semester who, um, uh, one student took him on himself to do make a bitsy game and he spent so much time on it. And another student who had a little calm experience, you know, made an RP, RPG maker game, right? And so sometimes they take it to that next level and what they're not just making a game, right? They feel that they are making a historical game and have that um, ability to apply the primary sources, right? You can cite all these things, particularly in Twine, and we make them do that. You have to cite these things. This, this is still history. <laughs> it's not something different, but it's creative. And that's, I think, the really important part is a lot of people, well, non-historians maybe don't think of history as creative, and history students can really get a sense of just how creative history is, right? You're forcing this upon them, maybe. Yeah, just really quickly, I so I'm running this kind of concept thing at the moment, like this semester, and I even, you know, we're two weeks into the, into the term and the kinds of ideas that the students are coming to me with and going, oh, do you think, you know, I, I could do this, I could develop this over the, you know, the course of the next 10, 11 weeks or whatever. I, yeah, it's, it's, it's astounding and you really can't underestimate like how much these students who may struggle to write an essay or may struggle to engage with the kind of more traditional ways of teaching will just completely kind of take ownership of this and you will see their interests and the things that they actually care about and the amount of time and effort they are willing to, to kind of put into this and how much, you know, they, they care about what they're doing um, just by kind of giving them support to be creative and to kind of think outside the box a bit. I wonder just real quickly if um, anybody on the panel would mind sharing for our audiences that might be interested in sort of diving into using video games in the classroom, maybe sample assignment handouts or, or syllabi. Uh, maybe we could cre create sort of like a Google Drive or something to put some of these things into. Um, yeah, and if I can be shameless self-promoter, if you go to our website, criticalplay.org, um, there is uh, samples of student games um, in the teaching history section on our website. So, um, but yes, I, I'd be actually ha really happy to, to, to provide those kinds of sample assignments. Uh, one thing that I did want to mention, um, you know, and I think uh, Jeff had brought this up a bit, and Esther as well, um, if you are a, a teacher, a scholar who's interested in engaging in kind of what we call AAA games, the big games that come on consoles and on PC, uh, and you're worried about the kind of finances of uh, or the logistics of getting a presentation of one of those games going in your classroom, uh, definitely use YouTube as a source, use Twitch as a source, because uh, video game companies, very different from uh, music companies or movie companies, where they are very happy to have people uh, publish content from their uh, licensed IP online. Uh, they view it as free advertising. 
Uh, and so you can find full playthroughs of every sort of historical game you can think of, uh, and you can share those with your students without uh, worrying about being sued. Uh, and this is essentially the model for History Respawn. I've been doing this since 2013. I haven't been sued yet, uh, so definitely make use of the work that other people have already put in. Uh, if you feel like you don't have the ability to learn the language of games, and gosh, I know I sometimes struggle with it as well, just learning how to play these games, uh, you can rely on experts online uh, who can provide not only the play content, but then also some of their own commentary. You might do without that, especially if you're dealing with YouTube, but uh, definitely make use of YouTube, make use of Twitch, um, make use of these streaming services that give you all of this content for free. Um, and it's, it's a big difference from when we're considering you know, sharing a movie or even a book in some circumstances where we have to worry about copyright issues. That is not the case with video games. Also definitely and, set history respawn videos as your set texts um, because students really love them and they don't have to read and they can just listen to like experts talking about them like Bob and like the historians that he has on or even the game developers that he has on as a guest. So definitely use history respawn. That's been a you. kind of lifesaver for me this year, definitely. Thank you. Flattery will get you everywhere. Uh, Esther now gets 40 minutes to talk standalone. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to do the same thing. Just going to flip it around on Bob and suggest that everybody listen to or watch um, History Respond is a really good example of how historians can approach games in a critical and entertaining way. Um, and and also to suggest too that YouTube is also home for whatever reason. A lot of people like to play games silently with, I mean, and, and there are playthroughs of full AAA games with zero commentary um, that you can pick and choose from the games and the parts that you need um, for either a class or any kind of illustrative purposes. So um, yeah, YouTube is a, has become a really fantastic um, weird resource. Um, so, but do be careful. Uh, <laughs> there are some some dark holes that you can go down to um, as well when you're looking at games. And I'll just real quick add that I think that the fact that you know so many people produce content related to the historical themed video games that they're playing, like that that video games have these huge fandoms, really speaks to the the tremendous demand that there is for. The, the intersection of history and games, right? Like people are out there playing historical themed video games. There are people that produce mods or like modifications that they add to games where they, you know, the goal is to make the game as historically accurate as possible or to talk about this or that relating to, you know, the history that's depicted in the games. So there's a tremendous demand for among consumers of, of video games for historical expertise and content. So we can give that to them in classrooms mm -hmm. and on YouTube. Yeah. All right. Uh, in order to make time for the last question, I'm going to go ahead and move on. Uh, and our last question uh, for today's panel is, what kind of work uh, do we, the panelists, want to see historians do with games? Uh, and so I'm going to leave this up to the panel to kind of consider some of the ways they hope uh, other scholars, maybe themselves, look at games, interact with games going forward. I think just to start things off, we can actually, there are, there are broader conversations and concerns and sort of 
I guess, yeah, dialogue and discourse is happening around digital history that I think the discussions of both historical video games and the history of video games needs to kind of be part of. And, you know, even in kind of the, I think it was the October issue of the American Historical Review, having those sort of roundtable on digital history and history in the age of the internet, I think, you know, we would be really kind of remiss if we excluded thinking about digital games and digital culture as part of that, thinking about, you know, we've been talking a lot about how we could study these things, but also how we kind of preserve games. And, you know, again, that's something that's come up that, you know, Anne was talking about earlier, how do we play some of these games or how do we access some of these games that, you know, we perhaps don't even have the technology to do so in the way that they were originally meant to be, meant to be played or, you know, meant to be accessed. And also questions about what do we preserve of kind of digital games and gaming culture? Is it just the game? And, you know, I would argue it's not just the game, it's everything else that comes with the game. How do we preserve sort of records of how games were played, how they were marketed, the kinds of conversations that were happening at the kind of the margins of the text? So I think one thing in particular that I think is really important and not just because my job role is officially in digital history, but kind of combining all the sort of conversations that we're having about being digital historians and increasingly in the context of the pandemic as all being digital historians to one degree or another, to what extent do you actually digital games and the kind of digital stuff around that, how does that fit into these, these kind of questions? Um, if we're going to start pushing forward and thinking about things like, you know, the internet, which might be shocking for some historians, we probably need to think about all the other stuff that comes with that too. No, I completely agree. And since I have the DH background, this is something that I've thought quite a bit about. Uh, and, and one thing that you mentioned is things that go around with video games. Um, I've become somewhat of a video game magazine hoarder. Um, you know, yikes. Um, <laughs> But I, I will just go in uh, like eBay and all kinds of like secondary stores and just buy game magazines because I feel like they're an important part of the story of video games, video game history. How are they being advertised? How are they being talked about? Who's talking about them? Uh, you know, these things are incredible sources and people just throw them away because they're old magazines. And so I've, I've really been uh, taking that upon myself to to grab some of those and that's actually my future research is living in a box right here and it's like 20 magazines um terrible magazines by the way but uh very good sources and um i i pulled this up i i wrote this book yay um and it was an experience of me going through playing the video games thinking of them as primary source text but also listening to what game development teams were saying about the games they were making um what kind of news reports are being said around the games it's it's a whole package that we have to consider and I, i'm really glad that i'm seeing historians do more work uh um, the history of video games but also using historical video games you kind of have to think of them as two separate things, even though they're very similar. Um, and so it's, there's good work being done and I'm, I'm excited to see more of that happening. And, you know, sometimes we also have to branch out a little bit and think about how do we make this as interdisciplinary as possible? Um, you know, we might have to add in some, some, some English versions of this. I, I've, I've done a, a paper recently about the 
the role of playing the game itself, um, what the gameplay and the audio, what those actually mean for the game and its narrative. And that's not something that you would typically get from a history paper. And, you know, we just have to experiment and play around and see what works and um, don't be afraid to, to uh, you know, like I said, play around video games. And be sure to hold your book up again. It was a little bit too fast. Yeah, that's perfect. Everybody get a good look. Fantastic. Available at all fine booksellers. Yes. Uh, to build off. Oh, I'm, that, oh, I'm fighting with Jeff Oops. again. That's okay. Um, this is normal. <laughs> I was going to build off on the idea of the story. And I think particularly, I'll bring Sean in here with the, the recent work Sean and I are, are doing is looking at the, the history of video games. Um, is is the story of video games from developers and game players in an oral history. Um, there's really nothing there um, at all. <laughs> and um, I, I, there are some interviews with developers and programmers here and there, but I mean, there's no wide uh, swath of things. And with game players, um, which is just lots of people, you know, and we could get a lot, learn a lot about the history of the games, um, you know, I, my current project, I, there's so little of anything I, I have to get stories about the people in these economically depressed areas playing games because they're just not there. I have somehow to create them in some ways, right? And so I think if, if we look at this as from a historian's perspective, this is just history, right? We're doing historian's work, but gathering this stuff is what I think is important to telling a, a more complete story. I think you would really enjoy the idea that my parents in very rural Tennessee met in an arcade that was their like first real date. Um, so like that, that would have been an interesting story for that oral history of how they hung out in this arcade and ended up getting married and having two kids who play a lot of video games. <laughs> well, what were they playing? Do you know? They have not been able to tell me that. I guess they can't remember that part. Okay. Yeah. But, kind of building off of Jeff's where, um, what Jeff was saying. Um, one of the things that, and, and, um, Anne as well, one of the things that we're interested in is the collection of the games and the, 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 and neither of us are engineers or technical people. Um, right. But I think it's, it's really important to have a place where our students can go to, experience some of these games in, on the original consoles with the original controller in their hand, um, with the electronic uh, static of the RF cable that's being stretched across the room and destroying the, 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 um, the picture, um, just, just to give them that, that kind of sense of, of, of of the old, right? Of the old is that, I mean, that's not really what I'm after, but right. But it's because they play all these, especially if they're into the, the kind of retro gaming um, uh, fad it, that is that is kind of sweeping across gaming circles right now. Um, they're playing all this in, in emulation on crisp LCD screens um, with modern controllers that they can remap to, to make things a lot easier um, than they were in the older, with these older generations. And I think the experience is part of 
the history of these games. Um, and one of the pieces that I most recently presented on was about the way that games move out of the living room and into especially teenage boy rooms and the way that that changes what it meant to game and what our ideas of gamer ultimately became. And companies like Sega worked um, to create an aesthetic for their game machine that fit within this kind of hyper techno-masculine, audiophile style kind of technology so that it looked cool on a shelf. Um, and that coolness lent something to that gamer mystique or that, that ma masculinity that came from playing that game and then mastering that game um, that wasn't a part, in Sega's case, of something like a Nintendo, um, an NES console, the original Nintendo console, which was just a beige box, right, that felt like it should be sitting in the living room and it felt like it should have a five-year-old playing. It was a toy, but Sega um, was the real machine, right? And, and so there's, as historians, right, we can get into people's living rooms. We can talk about the way that suburban, I mean, in, in some ways, suburban teenage life change, uh, changes and how that is largely reflected in a changing set of masculinities um, <clears throat> that, that I think are, are, are really important. And it's, it's in the machine, right? It's, it's, not, it's, it's both in the machine and in the gaming um, the way that the games are being played. Um, so I'm going to do one more kind of shameless um, plug. Um, so we have an archive um, that we're building um, around our, our center, um, and we are co actively collecting ephemera, magazines, um, old consoles, um, so if anybody out there, <laughs> right, wants to de dedicate any kind of, uh, right, just contact us and we'd be happy to take those things that are sitting in your garage off your hands, um, and put them into a place where they'll be right, um, in our students' hands. So, um, and in larger public's hands. Sorry, that was really shameless plug. You can cut that out, Bob, if you want to. No, um, stay in it for sure. <laughs> I can just see, you know, when folks come into your archive, making them sort of blow on the cartridge to make it work properly, you know, really get that, that authentic feel. <laughs> um, we could do that. I just hand them a bit of IPA and say, can you rub that on there instead of spitting in my cartridge, please? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you my terrible magazine box when, uh, when I finish with it and you guys can deal with, with all that funness. I think um, one concrete thing that I would like to see the profession do with video games moving forward um, is to, you know, in my mind, the way I think about it is, is like this, you know, um, the, for, for decades, the profession has treated films with like cinema film, you know, with a certain degree of, of I don't know, if, if respect is the, white, is the right word, but, you know, like, uh, you know, Reverence, movies, what, for sure. Yeah, reverence. That's, a, you know, like it's like film is worthy of critical analysis. You know, that's sort of how the profession, I think, approaches film. And I think that we should treat gaming the same way, video games the same way, because, again, this is a huge industry. It's bigger than cinema. Um, and so, you know, one example of that would be... Um, uh, you know, reviews of, of video games in major journals is something that I think that we should we should start to do. We already review digital history projects, um, at, you know, as of the last few years. 
in journals like the Journal of American History and, and AHR, right? And so why can't we expand that to encompass video games? Um, I think back to like 23rd, um, in my own subfield, Civil War Studies, I think back to the attention that the film Lincoln got back in 2013. I mean, there were like round table after round table dedicated to unpacking like every detail of, of the movie Lincoln. But again, Red Dead Redemption 2 blew Lincoln out of the water as far as profit goes. So why weren't there, you know, why can't we have um, moving forward, the same kind of attention that we give to film, also give that to games because the cultural relevance is there. So that's my soapbox for now. Good soapbox. Yeah, I mean, slightly anecdotally to kind of build on that, um, I gave um, a, uh, we did, did a panel with some colleagues in, in, in the UK at the British Association for American Studies in uh, 2019 so you know the big kind of British Americanists conference and we did an entire panel on kind of Red Dead Redemption 2 um, that was sort of the weird kind of slightly tangential basis for the edited collection that we have coming out um, with Oklahoma Community Press that Bob mentioned earlier but you know there were hardly any people in, in, in the audience really and you know was yeah it was actually quite surprising um but the people who were there were so so engaged with it and even people were coming up to us afterwards and saying everyone should have been at this panel because this is where our students are coming to us with all this kind of information from about the american west and american history and you know we we weren't super surprised by it i've, I've been the kind of the slight oddity at all the proper history conferences and slight oddity at all the kind of media conferences and so yeah, I guess to kind of build up what Jonathan was saying, actually re accepting or being perhaps more open to thinking that these, these sorts of conversations really do have a place and they have a place at the center of what we're doing and not just at the kind of slightly weird margins. And yeah, so just gonna join you on the soapbox for that. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, um, on the subject of reviews, I think edited, edited collections are one, um, way that the profession can, moving forward, um, take video games seriously. Um, you know, for example, uh, there's an edited collection, and this is my own small tiny plug, I have a tiny chapter in it, but there's an edited collection that's being produced right now on the Civil War in video games. Uh, there's a long history going back to like the 1990s, 1980s, of um, Civil War historians first encountering Civil War history through playing video games as kids, myself included. And so, you know, I'm sure that other fields have, other subfields in history have, have similar experiences. So edited volumes dealing with that would, would be great too. All right, I might uh, wrap things up here by saying then, uh, if you have anybody in the audience who is interested in maybe doing research uh, on games, uh, there is of course uh, obvious places where you can go, Library of Congress, has got a digital games uh, section now. Um, there is uh, several regional libraries that have got access to digital archives, uh, digital games. Uh, but one of the best places to go, I think, uh, in the United States uh, is the Strong Museum of Play, uh, which is located in Rochester, New York. Um, so this is definitely a place you wouldn't want to go to right about now, uh, but maybe uh, in the summer, uh, summer months, a great place, great setting. Uh, and uh, I oh, had actually won a fellowship to uh, the uh, Museum of Play uh, in 2019. I went there to study. Uh, they have the, all of the archives for the Oregon Trail and uh, MEC and the development team there. 
Uh, and so this library is uh, unfortunately seldom used uh, by historians. Uh, media scholars, of course, know about it. Uh, American studies scholars know about it, but historians uh, very rarely seem to use it. But it is an archive that has got money uh, to fund research trips, so you should go to their website, look them up. Uh, you should also uh, be sure to be in contact uh, with their director, J.P. Dyson, who's got a history degree, uh, very eager to have historians there. Uh, and it's also, uh, in addition to being an amazing archive for digital games and video games, uh, is one of the world's best children's museums. Uh, the entire first floor is basically dedicated to various children's spaces. And so if you do have a family, if you do have kids, you are trying to plan a research trip, uh, I recommend Rochester uh, in the summer, for sure. I would not go there. Uh, in the winter, but summertime, great time to go and do research and a great museum uh, that does amazing things with uh, children's sections, but then also video games uh, and video game uh, uh, displays. I'm going to second uh, that. They, uh, they were completely crucial to making this happen. They are absolutely amazing. Um, it's also the only time on a research trip that I could say that I got lost and uh, ran into Big Bird. <laughs> so, um, you know, you could go on your breaks, on your lunch breaks, and go and play arcade games. It's fantastic. But the, the staff there is amazing. The resources there, the actual archive, just absolutely phenomenal what's there. Highly, highly recommend. And for students and our kind of student researchers, I would say that archive.org is one of the key places for them to go, um, where much of the, especially the popular press in video, around video games has been digitized um, and is held there in, you know, quasi-legal fashions um, uh, because a lot of that is crowdsourced. Um, it's, it's great to, it's a really great um, archive of the paper side, but also um, it does do emulation in, web, in a web browser for a lot of the um, older DOS-based games and for even some of the old arcade cabinet, um, you can get you can get into emulation that through that through them as well. So there's a there's I think you know, they're doing a really good job of trying to to bring a lot of those digital sources into uh, in, in anyway. <laughs> All right. Any kind of last thoughts? Final plugs? books to hold up nothing okay well that does it for our panel thank you very much viewer uh, for joining us uh, thank you to jeff esther and jonathan and sean uh, for being panelists doing such an excellent job um, i apologize for the slideshow snafu at the top but uh, i think we we made it so uh, nobody died and that's always good uh, so thank you uh, thanks for joining us and uh, goodbye mm -hmm.